Welcome to Skim This. It's been a busy week in Washington, D.C., as lawmakers try to close in on gun control legislation, and survivors of gun violence told their stories. If after hearing from me and the other people testifying here today does not move you to act on gun laws, I invite you to my home to help me clean Zaire's wounds so that you may see up close the damage that has been caused to my son and to my community. Speaking of testimonies on Capitol Hill, the House committee investigating January 6th is gearing up for their primetime hearings. We'll break down what you can expect to see. Also on the show, we've got an interview with someone who's been on the front lines of the legal fight over abortion access as the Supreme Court gets ready to drop its final opinion any day now. There is going to be an immediate crisis in abortion care and the harms coming out of reversing almost 50 years of Supreme Court precedent are going to be swift and they're going to be devastating. And to wrap things up, we're looking into a mysterious meat allergy that's been popping up. All thanks to a new tick in town. We'll explain how to stay safe this summer so you can enjoy that backyard barbecue. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, the House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol will hold its first major public hearing this week in prime time. Here's the context. After a mob stormed the U.S. Capitol building on January 6, 2021, the Department of Justice has charged over 800 people with crimes related to the attack. And a bipartisan House committee made up of seven Democrats and two Republicans also began investigating what happened that day. Members have interviewed hundreds of witnesses, and now they're ready to go public with some of their findings, starting tonight. Here's what we're looking out for. The committee is expected to present a timeline of the riot, including how some Republican attempts to discredit the 2020 election results led to that day. We're also likely to get some tea on the Trump administration and what the former president was doing that day. Committee members are promising previously unseen materials and videos and some guest stars. So who is making an appearance? The committee has kind of had it rough in the booking department, so Trump and his allies won't be testifying. But staffers of some VIPs, like aides to former Vice President Mike Pence, may take the stand. Same with a documentary filmmaker who is following the far-right group The Proud Boys, which played a key role in inciting the riot. In fact, earlier this week, the head of The Proud Boys and four of his deputies were charged with seditious conspiracy in connection to January 6th. We also might see video of Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner's testimonies, but a lot of that is being kept under wraps until it's actually showtime. As for whether these hearings will have any political impact remains to be seen. But if you want to watch, grab your popcorn and tune in tonight to almost any major cable news network. The hearings start at 8 p.m. Eastern. 
Speaking of DC drama, all eyes were on gun control this week. On Wednesday, the House passed gun control legislation that would raise the federal minimum age to purchase a semi-automatic rifle from 18 to 21. The bill also bans the sale of high-capacity magazines. But it's not expected to pass in the Senate, where it faces GOP opposition. The vote came as one Uvalde, Texas survivor and others impacted by recent mass shootings spoke before a House committee investigating gun violence. Here is Uvalde survivor Mia Cerillo sharing what she saw in her classroom. He went to there and shot my teacher and told my teacher goodnight and shot her in the head. And then he shot some of my classmates and the whiteboard. When I went to the backpacks, uh, he shot my friend that was next to me. And I thought he was going to come back to the room. So I grabbed the blood and... I put it all over me. Mia's father came to D.C. to testify, too, pleading with lawmakers to do something to make schools safe. I wish something would change, not only for our kids, but every single kid in the world, because schools are not safe anymore. Something needs to really change. The parents of Lexi Rubio, who died in the Uvalde massacre, detailed the last time they saw their daughter. They were with Lexi just earlier in the day to celebrate her Good Citizen Award. I left my daughter at that school, and that decision will haunt me for the rest of my life. Earlier in the week, the White House briefing room got a visit from actor and Uvalde native Matthew McConaughey. He focused on the lives and dreams of the children who were killed and urged lawmakers to work quickly and recognize that gun reform is a problem for all Americans. You know what every one of these parents wanted, what they asked us for? What every parent separately expressed in their own way to Camilla and me? That they want their children's dreams to live on. That they want their children's dreams to continue to accomplish something after they are gone. They want to make their loss of life matter. As families and communities continue to grieve, and as the bill that passed the House seems to be going nowhere, a group of bipartisan senators have continued to negotiate potential gun reform legislation, and the group could have an agreement to share by the end of this week. All right, next headline. Breaking news, former Olympic gymnasts, including Simone Biles, are among dozens of assault victims who are seeking more than $1 billion from the FBI for failing to stop Dr. Larry Nassar. Here's what's going on. We thought we saw the end of the Larry Nassar case in 2018, when the former USA Gymnastics doctor was convicted in a state sex abuse case and was sentenced to up to 175 years in prison. But now, nearly 100 gymnasts, including Simone Biles and Allie Raisman, are standing up for themselves again and saying the FBI also bears some responsibility here. They allege that the FBI repeatedly failed to act after receiving detailed accounts of Nasser's sexual abuse back in 2015. They also claim that the FBI's inaction allowed Nasser to continue sexually abusing gymnasts under the guise of medical care. In fact, most of the gymnasts filing claims against the FBI 
were abused after 2015. Top U.S. gymnasts like Michaela Maroney and Maggie Nichols are asking for $50 million each in damages, and in total, the gymnasts seek $1 billion. This latest news comes just two weeks after the FBI announced that two agents who mishandled the Nasser case would not be charged with a crime. But if the FBI thought it was flying under the radar with that announcement, the gymnasts are saying not so fast. Okay, next headline. Boris Johnson has narrowly survived a vote of no confidence by his own conservative party. Wait, Bojo survived a no-co vote? We'll explain. Boris Johnson, who became prime minister of the UK back in 2019, has been getting a lot of heat from the British people recently. During the pandemic, while millions of Brits were cooped up at home, Boris Johnson was found partying it up with his parliament chaps. And after the news went public in a scandal called Partygate, Johnson denied being a rule breaker and never offered a formal apology. Safe to say the people were not digging his vibe. Neither were members of parliament who motioned for a no confidence vote to potentially replace him. Fast forward to this week, Parliament held the vote, but Boris Johnson managed to come out alive. But we should note 40% of his own party voted against him, which is more than analysts expected. And past prime ministers who've survived being ousted usually only stayed in power for a few months longer. So even though Johnson survived this vote, some think it's only a matter of time before he says pip pip cheerio to his prime minister role. And our final headline, which is more of a quick PSA. This week, Apple kicked off the 2022 Worldwide Developers Conference, where they announced what we can expect from the new iOS update. And heads up iPhone users, you'll soon be able to edit your text messages for the very first time. So you can kiss those late night texts to your ex goodbye. The second notable update is that users will finally be able to mark messages as unread. Because we're not getting any younger, and remembering to text back is getting harder. That update is expected to drop in the fall, and this time we won't hit ignore on those update reminders. Tuesday was another round of primary elections, and voters in seven states, including California and Iowa, headed to the polls to cast their ballots. And while there's been a lot of talk about the candidates this election season, there's another unseen group that's been trying to sway this year's results. The crypto industry. We're going to break down why big crypto is writing some of the biggest donation checks, and we'll take a look at who's cashing them, all in 60 seconds. Every election cycle, all sorts of industries, like tech, pharma, defense, donate to certain candidates, hoping to get them elected and to have allies making policy decisions down the road. Now, crypto has entered the chat and has reportedly spent as much as $30 million since the 2020 election cycle supporting federal candidates and campaigns. 
So why is an industry that doesn't exactly trust government institutions getting skin in the political game? Well, cryptocurrency has been unregulated so far by US politicians. So industry execs probably want to keep it that way. And big crypto has already scored a major political victory. Last year, after President Biden tried to include crypto regulation in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, crypto companies and execs upped their lobbying game and got Congress to leave them alone. And this year, the crypto industry seems to be going all in on backing candidates who support crypto and its lack of regulation. As for which candidates are getting the big bucks, I mean, coins, it seems like crypto execs are supporting candidates from both sides of the aisle. Like Representative Chantel Brown, a Democrat from Ohio, who won her primary with the backing of a crypto political action committee called Protect Our Future. And P.S., that PAC has spent $17 million in 2022 alone. In Indiana, Republican Representative Erin Houchin also won her primary with the backing of another crypto PAC that apparently spent over $6 million this election cycle. Plus, Coinbase, which is the largest U.S.-based crypto exchange, hosted a fundraising event for Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer at the end of March. But while it seems like big crypto has been trying to exert its influence everywhere, its political dreams might be hitting a roadblock. Because this week, a bipartisan group of senators introduced the first major piece of legislation that would allow government regulators to have oversight of digital coins. So it's safe to say that the two senators spearheading that bill, Senator Gillibrand of New York and Senator Lummis of Wyoming, might not be getting that crypto money anytime soon. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. It's been just over a month since a leaked Supreme Court document revealed that the justices appear ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. The official ruling could come any day now, so we wanted to get ahead of the news and understand what will happen in the days, weeks, and months that follow, because this ruling is going to have a pretty major impact on the lives of women around this country. This week, we spoke to someone who's been on the front lines of the legal fight for abortion access about what's next. Meet Nancy Northup, the president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights. Nancy, I first want you to just give our audience a little bit of background on what the Center for Reproductive Rights does and why you're involved in the case that's before the Supreme Court. The Center for Reproductive Rights are lawyers and human rights advocates that work to ensure that reproductive rights are protected in law as fundamental human rights by governments all around the world. And so when we talk about reproductive rights, we mean the whole range of access to reproductive health services, so access to contraception, to safe maternity care, to assisted reproduction, to abortion care, that whole range. And we work in the US, Latin America, Africa, Asia, Europe, and also at the UN to make sure that governments respect both the ability to access services, but also decision-making about your body, your life, and your future. 
So the Center for Reproductive Rights represents Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is the last abortion clinic in the state of Mississippi, in this case in the Supreme Court, in which Mississippi is asking for the court to overrule the decision. When Politico published that bombshell draft opinion, where were you? And did you have a sense that Jackson Women's Health Center was potentially going to lose this case? I was actually at the theater that night seeing the opening night of a new show here in New York. And I checked my phone to find out what the opening night reviews were. And instead, I found that my entire voicemail, my text, my email had exploded with, Nancy, get on a call right now. And it was very confusing at first to know, standing on 43rd Street, jumped out of the restaurant, right? Said, I got to go get a hold of this. Wait, is, is this a hoax by some brilliant law students? Is this really a leaked after opinion? Is the opinion coming down in like 24 hours? Like, I think that was my first panic was that they've leaked it and it's coming right now. And then we quickly assessed, you know, talking to Supreme Court practitioners that this did look, in fact, legitimate. The next day, Chief Justice Roberts, who is head of the nine justices on the Supreme Court, said it was legitimate and dug into it. Of course, we were aware that it was a possibility because the court took the case with Mississippi asking to overturn Roe versus Wade, but it was still stunning to read it so blatantly and aggressively and fully in the leaked draft opinion. If this is the true decision by the Supreme Court, what do you anticipate happening in the short term right after this decision comes out? What should our audience be prepared for in the immediate? Well, there is going to be an immediate crisis in abortion care. And the harms coming out of reversing almost 50 years of Supreme Court precedent are going to be swift and they're going to be devastating. And I say swift because there are 13 states that have something called trigger laws that they passed in recent years that say if Roe versus Wade is overturned, we're banning abortion in our state immediately. Other states, look, they're already trying to get ahead of the Supreme Court decision. Oklahoma just passed a blanket ban on abortion. Now we're suing on it. So there's going to be a lot of activity around trying to block those. There's going to be chaos for people who are going to get appointments at clinics in states that are all of a sudden saying we're going to shut it down. Texas has had a lot of effects in September in which they've banned abortion at six weeks and it has sent almost all of those seeking abortions out of the state of Texas. Oklahoma just passed a copycat law and people in Oklahoma are going out of state. Idaho tried to do the same. So we already have a crisis in abortion access care, but it is going to get worse. As I think about these first few days and weeks, I imagine there are going to be a lot of gray areas. I'm thinking about things like out-of-state travel or medicated abortion. How are you assessing and thinking about what those gray areas might be? Well, I think, first of all, what all of your listeners should understand is that here in the United States, the good thing is we have two layers of protection, the federal constitution, but also every state has its own constitution with its own protection of rights. You can go on our website, reproductiverights.org, and you can see what states are in strongly protected. So California, Washington, Oregon, New York, Illinois, in those states, abortion will be accessible. So know that. Also know that no matter what states try to do, they cannot stop a person 
from going to a state where it is legal to get an abortion. So if people are even concerned about the chaos in those first few days, they should get in touch with the clinics in their state, independent clinics or Planned Parenthood clinics, and ask them what to do. They should get in touch with clinics in other states. Get in touch with the abortion funds that exist around the country. They have helped for years people struggling to make ends meet to be able to pay for abortion services. So they need to go wherever they can get good information and not panic and know that there are a lot of people who are going to be there to help. In conservative states that are already looking to restrict abortion, do you think that they're going to try to limit access to out-of-state abortions or access to medicated abortion? Unfortunately, they are. I mean, a state legislature in Missouri has already offered a bill in that state that would say that anyone who aids and abets someone, meaning helps somebody who goes to another state to have an abortion, can be sued, you know, civilly. And so I think that's going to be a movement. I think it is absolutely unconstitutional. There's a right to travel in our constitution, and we need to protect against that. And currently, you know, medication abortion is available lawfully in all the states right now. It's safe and effective to be used up to 10 weeks, according to the FDA. And it's safe and effective to be used by telemedicine, meaning you could have a visual consultation with your doctor and they could then have the pills mailed to you. Now, unfortunately, states are trying to restrict that, say you can't get them by mail, you have to come into the clinic, or if they ban abortion entirely, that's going to be a challenge to medication abortion. But the reality is medication abortion is the choice of over half the people having abortions in the United States today. We're not returning to coat hanger abortions because people can get medication abortion. It is safe and effective. There will be questions about states trying to ban it, but no one has to resort to coat hangers. There's also been talk that restrictive abortion laws in states can actually impact people who miscarry. Can you explain the link there and why people are concerned? Anytime that you criminalize abortion, you are making every miscarriage a potential crime scene. And we see this all over the world. So the Center for Reproductive Rights is representing women in El Salvador who are in prison, often because they've had miscarriages, and yet they've been convicted of the crime of abortion, and they are serving prison sentences 30 years in prison because they've miscarried, because they've had an obstetric emergency. So everyone should be concerned because this is healthcare. It should be regulated by healthcare. And, you know, countries around the world are recognizing it. The Colombian constitutional court in that Latin American country ruled in the last year that they had to take abortion out of its criminal code. We won a case recently in Kenya also saying you cannot criminalize providers and patients for getting access to abortion care. And it's something that is of grave concern if Roe versus Wade is overturned because the way that they regulate abortion is through criminal laws. And on that note, can you just give us a quick snapshot or understanding of where the U.S. is going to stand on abortion rights compared to other countries? The U.S. right now, and absolutely if it reverses Roe versus Wade, is going to be going against the global trend to liberalize abortion laws. There have been 50 countries in the last 30 years that have liberalized their abortion laws. You know, I just mentioned Colombia. We also saw the Mexico Supreme Court recently ruled that abortion is a human right. The legislature in Argentina 
liberalize abortion laws. We saw the voters in Ireland in 2018 take the ban on abortion out of their constitution. We're seeing it all over the world. And it is only a handful of countries, unfortunately, in countries where authoritarianism is on the rise, when we're seeing the backsliding that is happening and absolutely will happen if Roe versus Wade is overturned. So I think a lot of times people in the United States think somehow we're, we're the vanguard of access to reproductive health care, and we're just simply not. How are clinics in states that will continue to allow abortion, how are they preparing for an influx of patients? And are they going to be able to handle the demand that they might see? Well, they absolutely are stepping up to get ready. They have known this is coming and they are making sure that they have clinic capacity. I can't answer the question about whether they'll be able to take all the capacity because, again, we're talking about healthcare services. You can't just, it's not like a pop up, you know, it's not like a pop up tent that you just put it there. So I think they're doing everything they can to. And state governments that understand that this is a fundamental human right are also stepping in. So the state of Oregon, issued a 15 million, I think, of funds that would be available to women coming from out of state to have abortion care. Other states are looking at this as well. So you've got good state governments with good public health that are looking to help women coming from other states. If the Supreme Court does overturn Roe, what other rights could be threatened by this decision? And how are you thinking through those? There's been so much misinformation about Roe and in the leaked draft opinion that it has no basis in constitutional law. That's simply not true. Roe stands on 50 years going before it of decisions about bodily autonomy, about being able to raise one's family along with one's own values, access to contraception. For 50 years after Roe, there have been decisions like being able to have same-sex relationships without being criminalized, to be able to marry someone of the same sex. All of those are part of what in the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment is called personal liberty, and it's guaranteed. And as the court said in the major watershed abortion rights case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, there is a realm of personal liberty that the government may not enter. And I think throughout the country, people agree with that that it is fundamental in a free society that you can decide who you're going to marry. You get to decide how you're going to raise your children. You get to decide the number and spacing and whether or not to have children. So what would be threatened if Roe versus Wade is overturned is access to contraception, the right to marry someone of the same sex, the ability to make decisions about how you raise your family, all these things, all these personal liberties are at risk. My last question for you is, what are the larger societal and cultural implications of this looming decision from your perspective? I can make some speculations, but you know what? I think we have no idea because this is going to be such a seismic shift. No one in this country right now who is of reproductive age has ever lived in a world in which the legal right to abortion wasn't guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution. In fact, no one under the age of 64 has ever lived in an America without that right. And I think we're going to see tremendous impacts. You know, every company that does business in a state that bans abortion is going to have to be deciding about what they're doing for their workforce and what stance they're going to take 
about the fact that they are running companies in a state and they have workers in a state whose rights have just been taken away. It could completely affect where people decide to work, where people decide to go to college or university. I think it's going to be having an enormous political effect and very, very concerned about the effect it's going to have on people who are struggling to make ends meet, communities of color, young people who can't just book a flight to Colorado from the Rio Grande Valley, immigrants, people living in rural communities. And one of the most important things I want to make sure that your listeners know is that for all of the law and policy that we've talked about, for all of the important issues around access to the healthcare, what is going to be most important for the very first thing that people do is they mobilize and they make their voices heard. Nancy, thank you so much. Thank you. had an anaphylactic reaction on a cruise ship. The doctors did not believe me that I was allergic to meat that I didn't consume. And I was trying to explain to them it could be in one of these ingredients that you didn't even know was unsafe for me. That's Debbie Nichols, who developed a rare, severe allergy to meat after she was bit by a tick. The same thing happened to Candace Mathis. I mean, there are so many people that contract tick-borne diseases and they've never even seen a tick. You know, even prior to my diagnosis, we did tick checks when we would go hiking and all of that kind of stuff. Both women have been diagnosed with alpha-gal syndrome, which is basically an allergy to mammal meat and sometimes mammal byproducts. All thanks to a backyard barbecue's most unwanted visitor, the tick. Ticks have never been a welcome presence because some carry Lyme disease. And now, one bite from a certain kind of tick, called a Lone Star Tick, can cause a severe meat allergy, aka alpha-gal syndrome. To understand what's going on here, we called Dr. Scott Cummins. He's an associate professor of medicine and pediatrics at the UNC School of Medicine, and he currently works with alpha-gal patients. So we asked him, what's the deal with this mysterious allergy? It develops after tick bites. And in the U.S., it seems as though this lone star tick is the culprit. At its core, it's an allergy where people develop an allergic antibody that recognizes or reacts to a sugar called alpha-gal that is present in all lower mammals, cows, pigs, sheep, deer. So you can't then eat beef, pork, lamb, venison, etc. The way that the allergy presents is similar in some ways to allergies you might think about like peanut milk or egg allergy where you eat some peanut and get some hives and itching. You could have chest tightness, throat closure, GI distress. One of the interesting things about the allergy is that often these are adults and they have safely eaten beef, pork, lamb, etc. for 30, 40, 50 years. According to Dr. Cummins, this reaction isn't just triggered by eating a burger. 
His patients have also reacted to animal byproducts like gelatin and even just the smell of meat. And more people seem to be seeking help for this allergy because these dangerous ticks are spreading out from the Midwest to the Northeast, thanks to warming temperatures. In fact, according to the CDC, the number of tick-borne diseases in the U.S. more than doubled between 2004 and 2019. And besides the fact that ticks are just everywhere, their bites can be hard to spot. Probably 70 to 80% will say, I found a tick on me, I know I had a bite. It leaves this red, itchy, inflamed spot. People even say it gets kind of a hard knot under the side of the tick bite. And then probably the other 20 to 30%, they don't recall a tick bite. For many of Dr. Cummins' patients, this diagnosis isn't lifelong. And after a few years, allergic reactions can lessen and symptoms can go away if patients aren't rebitten. But people affected still have to make some pretty big changes in their lives to accommodate their allergy, from what's for dinner to how they prepare to go outside. And that's where Candace and Debbie come in, who've started blogging and raising awareness about their experience with alpha-gal syndrome. And we should also note, the fear of getting bitten again hasn't stopped Debbie or Candace from getting back outside, thanks to some new habits and some strong bug repellent. Be prepared when you head out into the woods or the grass or outside doing anything. It means wearing tall socks if you're going out into tall grass. I pull them up over my jeans, you know, and, and when I go down to the barn, I actually put overalls over those too. And then I spray down anything that's going to have contact with the grass with a strong repellent like permethrin and um, including my boots. It's also critical to incorporate tick checks into your routine whenever you are coming inside from being outside. Really thorough. Get someone to check the areas that you can't get to. That needs to be a part of daily life if you're outdoors. Besides the practical advice, Candace and Debbie have also focused on helping others navigate the emotional side of an alpha-gal diagnosis with the lessons they've learned along the way. This is a process and you are giving up, like any food allergy, an enormous amount of things that used to mean so much to you. It's forced us to explore all new things, new products, new foods, new restaurants. And that's been really exciting because we've found things that we like even better than the dangerous things we used to eat before. A big piece of navigating any sort of chronic condition or food allergy, you know, it takes a toll on your mental health. I immediately went from being extremely active to couch-ridden. Debbie and I found the support in each other. We have found so much comfort in this process of building the support that you need, educating others, kind of just breaking it down so it's not so overwhelming for people in the beginning. Some good advice from the alpha gals who know. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Ko Takasugi Chernovin. And the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from the Skim. 
9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.